This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. What does it mean to resist oppression? Now, we're able to recognize the direct forms of resistance. The ordinary people who rise up in rebellion. The workers who refuse to labor in brutal conditions. The enslaved who steal away in the night, risking everything to seek freedom. But when we look back in our history, searching for these forms of overt resistance, we sometimes miss the more subtle, hidden ones. The decision to love, to laugh, to create, and in doing so, to claim a right to the fullness of humanity, even when systems and structures are built to strip that humanity away. Being fully human, with an interior life all your own, that too is resistance to oppression. And it is the interior life of the enslaved, which our next guest went searching for in her new scholarly book. My name is Tara Bynum, and I'm an assistant professor of English and African American Studies at the University of Iowa. In her book, Reading Pleasures, Everyday Black Living in Early America, Professor Bynum pushes us towards a deeper understanding of the everyday lives of Black Americans. People like Phyllis Wheatley, Minister John Merritt, and pamphleteer David Walker. She pulls us into their internal worlds and demands we recognize the pleasures our ancestors enjoyed as they lived, even in the context of oppression. I read this interiority as an invitation into a different story of selfhood, literacy, and community that pursues a kind of genealogy and ways of reading that privilege matters of feeling. I read for this interiority because it helps determine just what matters more. It demands the kinds of close reading that accept as fact interiority as a site of subjectivity and the making of meaning. It privileges those feelings that lead the reader to community, friendship, and a sense of providential mission. The lesson of interiority in this pursuit of good feeling is that reading pleasures are possible if only we take seriously a simple premise. Black lives do, in fact, matter. Born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, Professor Bynum's life influences her scholarship. Give me a sense of what I do and don't know about you by knowing that you're from Baltimore. Ooh, I think that that's a really interesting question, especially because Baltimore has such a public image at this point that on the one hand feels very familiar to me as a resident, but also doesn't necessarily speak to my actual life story. So I think the the thing that might not be most obvious is that, you know, my mother's family has a long history in Baltimore City in particular, like multi-generational over a century or longer in Baltimore City. You know, I think that there's also like not nearly as much conversation about the Black culture of Baltimore and the richness of that that history and its creativity. There's so much richness that is here and that's apparent and that ultimately kind of informs how I understand myself and how I understand my work. You know, I'm Baltimore through and through. Now cast back to the 19th century and tell me what I do and don't know about some of these Black authors by simply knowing that they are enslaved about 
who they are, what they care about, what they're writing, what their lives are, versus what you come to discover about them. So I'm going to push it back even further, if I can, Mm -hmm. into the 18th century. Would you don't know about them, of course, simply by knowing that they're enslaved, is the story that they bring themselves to the table. And that's largely what what got me into this research was realizing kind of as a graduate student that I'd missed so much of their stories looking for what I needed, looking for the resistance that felt familiar to me. At some point, reading the work of Catherine Clay Bassard, learning that Phyllis Wheatley, for example, writes letters to her friend who's also an enslaved Black woman named Uber Tanner. And at this moment, as I'm reading both Catherine Clay Bassard's article as well as her book, like, where are these letters? And they were right there in the back of the, the Penguin edition of the book that I had, you know, next to me. And because of my own sort of assumptions about Phyllis Wheatley and the poems that I was reading, I had missed just going to the appendix of the book. I didn't have to travel anywhere. I just had to look deeper and read better. So I think that the thing that I find most compelling about these stories is that the ones that I read anyway are are present. Like I didn't have to look or read hard for them. I just had to kind of get out of get out from under my own set of assumptions. Perhaps this is in part sort of the genesis of this title of reading pleasures. Talk to us a bit more about what you did find um, about the interiority of the lives of those you studied. There are four uh, authors that show up in my book. There's Phyllis Wheatley, there's John Merritt, James Albert, Ukasa, Graniosa, and David Walker. David Walker, I, I like to say, is my 19th century interloper. <laughs> um, and each of them, I think, speaks about what I call pleasure in a different sort of way. So Phyllis Wheatley has these letters to Uber Tanner. And, you know, I think that it's very clear that their friendship is is very important. There are also several of her poems that speak to her own set of desires and, and pleasures as well. Then Graniosa and Marin are both writing spiritual narratives, conversion narratives. They've been also called kind of proto-slave narratives, except that that doesn't quite tell the story right. Someone like John Marin is born free. And what they both have in common is a very clear and real sense of of their Christian faith and the pleasure that, that is derived from being a believer of Christianity um, and a believer in kind of the salvation that comes with that faith. And then there's David Walker, who is, you know, known so much for his anger. And I think his anger is apparent. I'm not here to deny his anger, but instead say that the anger is meant to mobilize the action that will change this country, the United States, for the better. And and that better will allow for a happiness that he is very invested in. Um, and a happiness that will be, I think, very specifically for the Black communities that he's talking about. All right, quick break, and then we're back with more with Tara Bynum from the University of Iowa. It's The Takeaway. Mm-hmm. 
I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and I'm still with Tara Bynum, assistant professor at the University of Iowa and author of Reading Pleasures. What is it you thought you were going to find? What were you hoping for, for your own interior experience, perhaps? So here I am, a Black woman. I've already said that I'm from Baltimore. You know, if I think about kind of my elders, the ones that I know, but the ones that I could not have met because they died before I was born, you know, I think that there's one way to tell like my decidedly U.S. story that is centered largely in the state of Maryland and North Carolina, I didn't quite understand how I got here because the story was so tragic. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I think the story at times felt very two-dimensional because I don't necessarily think tragedy is the defining feature that then allows folks to kind of create and produce generations. You know, I don't know that that's how I would talk about my my grandparents' life, even though we can have a conversation about, you know, all of the isms, the realities of, of the difficulties of living in the U.S. or even just kind of growing older. But I think that there's something else that, that helps to account for my literal presence. And that's, that's what I was looking for as I read the letters and poems, the narratives and, you know, the appeals as well. So so let's dig in on that a little bit. I want to go inside Phyllis Wheatley a little bit more, perhaps because as you talk about sort of the intersecting isms, you know, perhaps our thought of an enslaved Black woman, right, would suggest that what else could she produce but work that is tragic, sorrowful, and focused primarily on her experience of enslavement. But what is it that Phyllis Wheatley writes about? The letters are my favorite. You know, it's the 250th anniversary of her poetry collection. So there's a lot of talk about the poems right now. But the letters, there's something that I really enjoy about the letters. And I think it's really that kind of I voice, you know, and the the I voice that is, is meant to be not a poetic voice, but but Phyllis Wheatley speaking. And and in the correspondence between Uber Tanner and Phyllis Wheatley, you know, I think that there's familiarity, you know, so I don't necessarily find the answers to the questions that I'm looking for because they're friends who don't need to restate how they met each other. They're friends who don't need to explain to each other what's important to them. And I think there are a couple places where where there are hints of that. So, you know, there are Bible quotations littered throughout their letters. There's certainly kind of mentions of, of Wheatley's feelings about a variety of topics, including the sale of her books. Like she's very emphatic about selling her books and also receiving money for those books as well. You know, I think that there's clearly an intimacy between the two of them that's apparent in kind of how Wheatley greets Tanner with a dear sister and also in kind of what she reveals or doesn't reveal, I would say, in the letters themselves. 
you know, as you're talking about sort of what it means for friends to just write to one another, um, I'm also just wondering about the ways that historians have maybe or literary scholars have received Wheatley's interiority, her friendship, her joy, whether or not she's been taken at her word or um, the ways that, that maybe we've presumed she's masking something. I guess I wanted, as you said, to take her at her word because I, I recognize that something like interiority is not ever going to be fully available to the researcher. You know, I think that there's something there's something that's meant to be private about that. It's not all for public consumption. And yet I think that tension is part of the power of looking at at Wheatley's work a bit more deeply than what has kind of historically been done, you know. And you know, I think what I can appreciate about kind of this yet another sort of resurgence of interest in Wheatley is that I think people have begun to get more curious about that interiority and trying to find more of Wheatley's story, you know, and and asking questions that maybe seek to find Wheatley in places that we don't expect her. Can an enslaved person feel joy without saying that slavery is okay? So this is the thing, right? You know, I think that I would argue, yes. And I also fully understand kind of the risk that I take in making this argument, because I think the fear has been that if we kind of acknowledge the possibility of joy or pleasure during enslavement, that then proves true the idea of the happy slave. And I would argue there's a way to not do that. And my hope is is that my work is a kind of model for one way of doing that. What I came to realize looking at these four writers is that I think it's always been true that the specter of whiteness, the specter of oppression doesn't have to define every single moment of Black living all of the time, kind of across centuries. I mean, I think that it's it's a part of the story, of course, but it doesn't have to be the defining feature. And that, you know, I think Black people have the full gamut of emotions available to them and always have. And I think that part of our responsibility as scholars includes doing the the kind of hard historical work and research, but also like, finding those moments that don't quite fit into what we understand as hardship, but there's something... There's something else happening here. And it might be multiveiled, of course. You know, so maybe we can read Wheatley's letters literally. And also maybe we can imagine her kind of offering coded language to Uber Tanner as well in order to, you know, protect those letters as they are kind of carried between them by various persons, known and unknown. And I'm just taking a peek at at one piece of that story not in order to replace the larger story, but to also say that while there's enslavement, there's also moments when Black people have figured out how to gather and enjoy themselves and and love one one another and think about building a community and building a community. Can you tell me how Christianity um, and Wheatley's understanding of her own Christian faith plays into your understanding of her interior life? 
the language of Christianity is the language through which she and Uber Tanner talk to one another. So, you know, to make sense of Wheatley's letters, you have to have the Bible next to you. You have to know that she is quoting, but not necessarily citing the Bible verse that she's using. And I'm, I presume that that's because Uber Tanner also knows to recognize that verse of scripture too. Tara Bynum, Assistant Professor of English and African American Studies at the University of Iowa and author of Reading Pleasures, Everyday Black Living in Early America. Tara, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a wonderful conversation. 